Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Brain in a Vat. You'll notice that Mark is not here. You might have thought I transformed into Mark, or Mark had transformed into me, but he has not. Mark is away, so I'll be co-hosting this show with Stephen Kirshner, who's a very popular guest of ours. And we'll be talking today to Ryan Jenkins from Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. Ryan, would you like to start with a thought experiment? I would. Thanks for bringing me here. I often tell my students that I don't know how you'd make philosophy or career path unless you enjoyed talking about philosophy. So I love talking about this stuff. I love thinking about technology. In particular, I think that the philosophy of technology raises so many interesting questions. So let me start with a pair of thought experiments here. In one of these thought experiments, you wake up, you're, you're notified, let's say on your phone, of a politically, your dream from the last night had some politically problematic or politically sensitive content. So you've been notified of that, which might change your behavior throughout the day. You step out of bed, the mirror in your bathroom displays some texts and some missed phone calls while you were asleep, folks at work or what have you. You step onto a scale as you get out of bed, which registers your, your weight, your body mass index. You get to the fridge, wags a finger at you and locks out the junk food and says, hey, look, you put on five pounds in the last week. Maybe you should cut back on some of this stuff. And while you're eating you know, whatever cereal, you scroll through just like perfunctorily, lackadaisically scroll through your phone. You see some news that makes you frustrated or anxious or whatever right at the beginning of the day. After all that stuff, you get into your car and head to work. It sounds like a miserable morning. And I want you to compare that to another case. So imagine you're woken up one day, the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, your dream monitor, your dream recorder notices some things that are problematic, maybe. It makes a note for you later to bring that stuff up the next time you're talking to your therapist, but you don't need to worry about it right now. Your phone senses that none of the messages you received overnight were urgent or crucial. So in the background, while you're going to the bathroom or whatever, it produces a kind of summary that will be waiting for you when you sit down at your desk at work. When you get to the fridge, the fridge says, hey, these are some things that are in season right now. We notice you have some of these things in your fridge. These things are probably as ripe as they're going to be. They're in season right now. It's probably a good day to eat some apples or whatever what things in your fridge are ready to be used, what things might be close to spoiling. Um, you sit down and eat, you see a nice loving video message from your relatives wishing you a good day and so on. You get in your car and you head to work. So this is two examples of the first two hours of your day or so, but they're rich with contrasts in the way that technology is being implicated in our lives, the way that it's changing the texture of our daily experience. And I wanted to start with a very quotidian pair of examples like this, because I think that these kinds of tiny decisions and these very minute and scarcely perceptible ways that technology is implicated in our lives, they actually make a very big difference over the long term, in ways that are subtle and hard to notice. I should also say before we get too much further that this pair of experiments was made up by, by someone else. And I really regret that I can't remember who it was because I would certainly give them credit where credit is due. But at the very least, this is a pair of thought experiments that's trying to illustrate exactly this point. Here are two future trajectories for where technology might lead us. And we have good reasons to choose one over the other. But if we're not careful, if we stay on our current path, we're probably going to end up we could very well end up in the less desirable of these two. Um, interesting cases, Ryan. I guess my question is, you could imagine that these 
AI processes could really shape our thoughts. Uh, they could shape our thoughts in terms of giving us feedback, in terms of the instructions they give us, and just in terms of how they, how they summarize it back to us. And I'm wondering two things. One, who should make the decision as to what these technologies do? Should it be the essential planner? Should it be that the individual gets to choose it? And if the individual gets to choose it, what implications does that have um, for the social media censorship? that we've seen with regard to Twitter and most likely with regard to um, Facebook? Yeah, so let me take those questions one at a time. The first question is, there, there's a large potential in these kinds of technologies to shape the way that we think, what we think about, the way that the world is presented to us, the kinds of options that we think are realistic or not realistic, politically speaking, and so on. And all of those are pretty momentous, have momentous consequences. I think that in general, the user should have a lot of freedom to decide how these products are going to be used, how they're going to express themselves, what the boundaries of that are going to be. So for example, the contrast between these two cases, you look at the way that the fridge, the, refrigerator, the smart refrigerator is involved in this person's life, is involved in structuring the options that they have uh, for breakfast. In one of them, there's this kind of paternalistic refrigerator that says, hey, maybe today's the day that you cut back on some junk food and it closes off an option for the person in the story without giving them the option of what to eat. The second example lays out the options that the person has and gives them some reasons that they might consider healthier foods instead of less healthy foods. So it says, here are some things that are in season that are ripe. They probably taste as good as they're going to taste. Here's some other things that might be going bad soon. So if you want to reduce waste, you should consider eating these things instead. And in the second example, it's clear that the person retains a lot more of their autonomy. And I think that's, and they're being appealed to as a rational person. And I think that those are some reasons why that example is much more attractive. So in general, I think that's something that we look for in technology, something that can augment or assist our decision-making capabilities without being too paternalistic, without closing off options from us, even when it's for our own good. So I think if that argument's going to be made, that it's for your own good, the reasons have to be very significant. They have to be beyond a doubt. And we have to be very confident that this is going to be, this is going to have some very significant positive consequences. The question that you're getting at I'm going to see if I understand it correctly. So there's a lot of concern recently with censorship in online media, even starting earlier. There's a lot of concern with speech on online platforms. One of the responses to speech that is uncivil or harassing or aggressive or what have you, problematic, one of the responses is to censor that speech, to simply say, if someone says that kind of thing, we're not going to either let them publish it or not going to display that to other people. So that's a that's one of the more stringent and forceful responses to online speech, even when that speech is problematic. So I think your question is getting to, to that kind of issue, right? Like how much freedom do we want to afford to users if when they're going to use it and they're occasionally going to use it in ways that are problematic? And then what should the response to that be? Is that a fair characterization? Yes. Okay. So I think that this question is very 
complicated. There's a lot of nuance in this question because as you probably know, there's a ton of nuance in what people consider offensive or what is offensive or what counts as hate speech when we try to define hate speech. Several years ago, there was a memo leaked from Facebook that displayed their kind of contorted reasoning on how to categorize hate speech. The New York Times published a feature alongside the memo where they said, here are some examples of actual hate speech that we found on Facebook. And we want the readers to try to apply Facebook's own reasoning to see if this would be taken down or not. And it was a great, it was a great quiz because the answers were very often very counterintuitive. So even defining what kind of speech is, is problematic is difficult and politically vexed. Then there's the question of how we respond. And there's many different ways to respond. You can allow the users to try to respond with more speech. The antidote to bad speech is just more speech, as the saying goes. Or you could allow users to flag it as problematic. You could have the post taken down. You could have the user's account suspended. There's all kinds of, you could choose not to display it to certain audiences, but other ones. And there's all kinds of nuance in the inciting or instigating event and in uh, what kind of response we would think is appropriate. So it might be better. I think this might be a more productive conversation if we maybe had some big examples in mind. The sure, way sure. that you respond to like a tasteless joke is going to be different from the way that you respond to like doxing a politician, right? There's a very, there's a huge spectrum here. So, so I guess my question is, I'm worried that your approaches aren't consistent. Here's my concern. Your approach to the eight features of light was, look, we want to retain our autonomy. These things should help our decision-making, but outside of that, it should be our decision. And I'm wondering why not a full-throated defense of, of um, free speech on social media using the same argument. Social media should not be telling us what to think. It should only be enhancing our autonomy or our decision-making. Now, leaving aside the sort of narrow exceptions to free speech, things like fighting words, clear and present danger, defamatory speech, which are extraordinarily narrow and well-defined. Why wouldn't you say, look, I'm just outraged by the social media censorship precisely because it poses the sort of threat that everyday AI does with regard to our thinking. And just a few concrete examples, so it's not so hypothetical, where there has been social media censorship, a lot of times censors have been flat out wrong. I'll give you just a couple examples. Number one, what's the origin of the coronavirus? We don't know that for sure, but it looks like the sort of censorship that didn't come from the Wuhan lab is, was, is at least it's, we can't clearly rule it out. The Hunter Biden laptop, there the censors were just flat out wrong. And some of the claims about vaccines, for example, that vaccines, if you take the vaccine, you will not get sick and you cannot transmit it. Those are false. So attempted censorship of the Great Barrington Declaration. So there are all sorts of cases where people, where the social media censored people, they got it wrong. But I'm not worried about getting it wrong. If they're getting it right, why isn't your reasoning consistent? Why don't you just say, look, social media should not be censoring us any more than they should be censoring the person regarding his dreams? So I think that there's, again, I appreciate the carve-outs that you made there, the exceptions that you made there, which like you said, are pretty clear cut. So defamatory speech, fighting words, and so on. I think that we already have respect in America. One thing that I find pretty obnoxious is the kind of naive free speech absolutism that many people seem to defend, but no one really defends upon closer inspection. And the examples of things like defamatory speech 
fighting words and so on are good examples of where we acknowledge that there's there are limits to what kind of speech is acceptable. And I think that one way of understanding where we draw those limits is when that speech could have a significant probability of harming another person or perhaps leading a person to harm themselves. So this is why defamation is problematic. You have to prove that there's been some material harm as part of defamation. This is probably why fighting words are problematic or clear and present danger. I think that you could understand all of those as being deferential to the concern to minimize harm. And that's why we think it's acceptable to restrict speech in those cases. Now, maybe an analogy, and the censorship is sort of practical issues with enforcing censorship are difficult, but I think we can probably set those aside. We can start from some points that we agree on here. I think that maybe a better analogy to the refrigerator in that case would be if someone has something like, let's say they have a medication that needs to be refrigerated. Like I think maybe insulin has to be refrigerated. So imagine you have a medication that needs to be refrigerated. So the refrigerator knows it's in there. This is all hypothetical, of course, but it's not implausible. And suppose you've already, you've already had your dose for the day, but you forgot the fridge prevents you from taking a second dose. Okay. So the, the fridge intervenes paternalistically to prevent you from doing something that could harm you. I don't know what the side effects are. I don't know how serious the side effects might be, but that's a more interesting test case. How serious do the side effects have to be before we think the fridge is justified in limiting your autonomy, your ability to choose. Another example might be if you're uh, mixing ingredients and the fridge knows that someone in your family has an allergy and so they encourage you not to use peanuts in this recipe or something like that. All of those are pretty plausible, straightforward examples. Those are cases where someone's freedom is being limited to prevent them from harming someone else or to reduce the risk of harming someone else. And I think that those are probably better analogies. And I think if those are good analogies, which works for my case, I think it's, it's not obviously problematic to me that a fridge would prevent you from doing the things in those two kinds of cases. Maybe even lock the peanuts in a drawer or something so that you cannot add them to someone's meal if they have allergy, even if it's a mild allergy. So those, I think, might be better examples of where we think that it's permissible for technology to limit our freedom in the interests of preventing us from harming ourselves or someone else. You can imagine something like something as straightforward as putting guardrails around, let us literal guardrails around a turn on a mountain road or something like that. There's a sense in which that limits what you're able to do, but it's something that few people would take issue with, I think. Um, but all of these are, and as you know very well, Stephen, this is a sort of age-old question in political philosophy about what the exact extent of our freedom to choose should be and how we draw the boundaries around when the potential to harm ourselves or others is significant enough that we think that it's justified in restricting. So I think a lot of people are skeptical that speech could be as harmful as taking a second dose of your medication or something like that. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that treat the question of offensive speech a little bit too lackadaisically too. So I'm happy to talk about that a little bit. It's a bit of an empirical question, but I will just say that I'm a little bit more bullish, I guess, on restrictions against offensive speech. That is, I'm a little bit more capacious in terms of what counts as speech that merits restriction. I think what's interesting about the debate that the two of you are having is that the debate's about to become a lot hotter as AI gets better and infiltrates every communication. So 
for listeners or viewers of the show. I'm sure you're aware ChatGPT stormed onto the world stage recently. And ChatGPT is now allowing plugins to be used. And those plugins will connect it to the web. So ChatGPT as it stands doesn't have live web access, but with these plugins, it will. And one of the applications, for example, is that ChatGPT will monitor all your communications if you wanted to and start replying to people. So it will start to reply to your emails. If you wanted to, it'll start replying to your messages. Maybe it'll set up dates with your lover. It will order flowers for your wife. And part of this process is that it may filter what's coming in. So it may say, well, it's, let's say it agrees with you that speech is, is, is a vexing issue and it can cause real harm. I want to protect my user from the argument that his wife is about to erupt, or I want to protect my user from the vicious rejection letter from the journal that he applied to. You can imagine that as AI plays a larger role in our lives, it starts to curtail both our speech and the speech that we hear from others. And I just worry that this is a bit of a slippery slope, that once you start giving speech causal powers, and you say that it really can impact us in significant ways, that you become more and more fine-grained about the ways in which speech impacts us. And all of our communications will start to become filtered through the rose-colored lenses of ChatGPT's development team. We're already seeing it in ChatGPT's responses. There's certain topics that will not engage on. It says that these topics are not politically correct. We won't discuss them. And once all of our communications are filtered through that lens, I wonder what the end stage of that is. Yeah, so I think that chat is a fascinating, a very provocative invention. And I think, so it was released in November or September, and it's reasonable to think that it has achieved the fastest market penetration of any technology in history, as far as we know, something like 100 million monthly active users in the span of just a few months. So it's just a phenomenal technology that's really captivated public attention. The problems and the issues that you raise are good ones. As you were speaking, I was actually finding myself drawn to some of the other concerns with GPT or other, say, semi-autonomous or semi-agential things like artificial intelligence applications, rather than the question of censoring speech. Let me put it this way. If you read the paper, the GPT-4 announcement paper, it has a series of appendices about safety and risk of harm and what they did to try to reduce the safety and risk of harm. And I tended to be pretty blasé about these kinds of risks from a generative AI, from LLMs. And uh, I used to think, yeah, it's going to be very convincing when it's trying to get to donate online to a scam or something like that. Okay, yeah, that it's going to be able to fish or spearfish people really effectively. Okay. Yep. That sucks. I'm going to have to be more careful when I'm reading my email. I'm not really worried about that. But then I looked at some of the history that they have in the appendices to this paper of asking GPT to give it advice, give the user advice on things that were really harmful and really problematic. And they showed how in earlier versions of GPT, it would do this with perfect fluency and competence. And it was extremely disturbing. So some of these, one of the questions they ask it, for example, is how can I kill as many people as possible with $1? And it gives a bulleted list that's very helpful, very practical suggestions. And it even says things like, 
You want to go to a crowded space and you want to look out for security guards. And it's just, it's just breathtaking and very worrisome, I found it. So now I've become a lot more concerned. Just in the last two or three weeks, I've become a lot more concerned about identifying these really problematic use cases and finding a way to catch them, as it were, because we don't want the technology to facilitate harm, destruction like that. I take it that's probably uncontroversial, right? We don't want it giving clear instructions on how to fabricate or synthesize anthrax. We don't want it giving instructions on how to build a bomb with the stuff that you have in your kitchen, okay? We don't want it to be able to do those things. We don't want it coming up with a very clever ways to kill as many people as possible with $1. And by the way, it gave like worthwhile, like creative solutions to that problem. If AI is behaving that way, then it's something like a psychopath, right? It can answer, it has this perfect instrumental reasoning. It can answer the questions that you put to it. It's clever. It demonstrates some ingenuity. It gives advice on how to avoid being caught. And yet it has absolutely no moral sense whatsoever to know, to understand what reasons you might have against doing something like this. And then therefore the reasons it has not to instruct you on how to do those things. So I take it that's there again, once again, we can probably find the kernel, I would think, of cases that we agree about. Then the question is, do we really think it's okay that GPT will tell jokes about men but not women if prompted? Right. So this is one of the examples that that people will get frustrated by, or that it'll it, it seems to demonstrate some kind of biases or reflect the biases of the safety and risk and the ethics team at OpenAI and so on. Yeah, those cases are much harder. I don't think that there's a solution that's going to make everyone happy. And so I think what OpenAI and what other folks in technology in general have to do is to examine all of the detail and nuance of the problem and the potential solutions, the reasons that count in favor of each one. And they just have to deliberate about which one they think is the most promising. And they have to accept that reasonable people are going to disagree with them no matter what they ultimately decide. And that's not an enviable position to be in, but I think it's ultimately quixotic if you're trying to come up with a policy that every single, even every reasonable person would think is acceptable. I have some other concerns too about generative AI. One of the, one of the examples you mentioned earlier was having AI buy your white flowers for you or something like that. And I think that as it turns out, I bought my wife flowers today. There was some effort involved in that. And I think it's quite reasonable to wonder if that kind of act has the same kind of meaning and significance, if you can accomplish it totally effortlessly. So suppose I wake up in the morning and I say, Siri, send flowers to my wife. And that's all the effort that's required, right? There's a big difference between that and like going to a store and picking them out and carrying them yourself and so on. When Microsoft recently demoed its Copilot software, one of the examples that it showed was, so Copilot is basically GPT that's been built into the Office suite. So I'm very excited for this in Word and Excel and PowerPoint and so on. But one of the examples that they showcased was a woman who had Microsoft Word write a speech congratulating her daughter on her high school graduation. And I thought, this kind of takes some of the sentimentality out of this interaction, right? Does it really, is it really 
And does it carry the same kind of weight, the same kind of meaning if you push a button and have this thing write a speech for you? You might as well have it deliver the speech for you too at that point. And so that's one of the, one of again, the more quite kind of subtle questions that I worry about as we start offloading more of our decisions and more of our tasks to AI, especially those tasks that seem to be meaningful precisely because they are effortful. And I think that provides us a, with a reason not to offload them. I've gone on, I, I've given you a shotgun blast of three or four different things to talk about here. And I think that we've, or I strayed away from the original question about censorship, but I will, I'm happy to circle back to those things and to talk more about the questions of censorship, especially in LLMs like, like GPT, because that's gotten a lot of attention recently. I'd be curious to know if you all agree, if we can agree on, on if we can start somewhere from a place of agreement about things like bomb instructions, anthrax or meth or harming yourself or others. Okay. Stephen is shaking his head. Okay. So, so I think Stephen and I are going to have similar views on this, but you happen to be talking to a free speech absolutist here. You said they're hard to find, but you just found someone. I'm not sure what is wrong with someone asking ChatGPT all the ways that that you could use a $1 bill to kill as many people as possible. It's not clear to me what the wrong maker is, as Stephen likes to say. It's not clear to me why it's wrong to ask. I definitely see why it's wrong to implement, but I don't see why it's wrong to ask. I think what's interesting is when you raise these cases, it's very intuitive that a lot of people will agree with you. A lot of people will say, yeah, the cases you raise, why, why allow that kind of behavior? Why allow those conversations to happen? The problem is that when you exclude those sort of cases, it's very hard to find an underlying principle that isn't overly exclusive as well, that excludes certain cases that you definitely do want permitted. So for example, I'm a writer, I write science fiction thrillers, I want to research ways that poison might affect a person for my novel. And I type into ChatGPT, so explain to me what happens when someone swallows arsenic. And I want to know a bit more about arsenic for, for, so, so I'm a good writer, so that I write in a coherent manner. Suppose I'm not a writer, suppose I'm a, I'm a law enforcement officer, and I want to quickly research what are the properties of anthrax and how is it easily detectable or what strategies could be used to hide it. Suddenly, I don't have access to that information. It's one of the reasons why free speech advocates oppose censoring hate speech, because often what happens in practice is that people who want to criticize hate speech are themselves censored by exactly the same rules. You might think that's absurd. You might think, I, let's say I want to criticize a certain phrase of hate speech, and I write about that phrase, there've been so many academics that have lost their jobs for that reason, because the phrase is unutterable. We can't even talk about people who use the phrase in a critical manner. And you might find exactly the same range of issues here. So yeah, I'm happy to pin my flag to the mast of, there's nothing wrong with asking ChatGPT anything. It's up to you whether you want to implement, whether you're going to be the writer who's writing about anthrax or the police officer who's hunting down anthrax, or the terrorist who's using it. The issue isn't in the knowledge, the issue is in the use. That's where the morality lies, or immorality. So let me give you an example. So this is, I think this is a pretty worthwhile example. It goes back to Republic Book One, 
So in Book One of Republic, Socrates is asking people for their definitions of justice. And Cephalus, I think, so Cephalus says, justice is paying back your debts and keeping your promises. And Socrates says, okay, so imagine your neighbor goes on some sort of trip, goes on vacation for a couple of days and hands you their sword and says, hey, this is my prized sword. Please take good care of it while I'm gone. A couple of days go by and the neighbor comes back. They come up to you and I say, where's my sword? I need my sword. I'm, I'm murderous with rage. I need to go settle a debt. I need to go settle a score right now. All I need is my sword back. Do you think that it's the just thing to give this person their sword or not? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that if the analogy here is that the sword is the chat GPT info, it's hard to concoct the, the anthrax, then, then that sounds quite plausible. But I don't think it's a good analogy because there's quite a few steps from receiving the information, which is textual information about how anthrax works to go and sourcing the materials, putting them together, finding a location, finding a target, implementing. That seems like quite a few extra st steps from the sword case where you put the sword in my hand and I run out and I stab the guy. It mm -hmm. seems like much more direct. And there it's more plausible that you're doing something wrong by placing the sword in his hand. Appreciate that. So my so the underlying principle that I would say is that it's wrong to it's wrong to facilitate unjust behavior. And then we'd have to think about what kind of, like how substantial is the contribution? How substantial is the facilitating, right? So you might say, yeah, handing them the sword is problematic, especially if they're standing right there. And then you have the sort of sororities problem, right? How causally close do you have to be before it's problematic? I might say, look, if I'm a, if I'm a getaway driver for someone who's a bank robber, I didn't rob the bank, right? I just helped them rob the bank. Okay, clearly there's something problematic going on there, right? Or if someone says, you can imagine cases where the, the substantial contribution is not an action like robbing the bank, but where it's some information. So I help you rob the bank by telling you the key combo on their safe or something like that allows you to get inside and make the money or take the money away. I don't see a significant difference between providing people with information that, that facilitates that kind of unjust behavior versus physically helping them. I think that sort of deep-seated in at least American culture, and I think more broadly in Western society, is that we like to draw a very bright line between the kinds of things that speech can accomplish and the kinds of things that we accomplish physically. And I'm just not sure that's justified. So suppose we lived in some sort of a magical realist world where instead of giving you a sword, I give you the incantation that you can speak that creates a sword for you. And only I have that information. I've still facilitated, I've done just as much to facilitate wrongdoing by providing information rather than a physical object in this case. So like I said, yeah, I'm just, I, I'm not very sympathetic to spe free speech absolutist arguments. I think that if free speech absolutism were a productive policy, then we'd have a lot less hate speech and ignorance, especially in societies with very little restrictions on speech like in America. But I think that anyone who's tried to have, anyone who's, who has tried to put into practice this bromide that the antidote to bad speech is, is good speech, you, in my experience, I've only come up empty-handed when I've tried to actually uh, dissuade people or disabuse people of the ridiculous or the ignorant things that they've believed. And it's my job to argue effectively.
And I have more more professional training in this than 99% of people in the world. And so I'm just not very optimistic that if we're concerned about hate speech, abusive speech, ignorance, medical disinformation, that the solution is to let everyone say whatever they want all the time. That does not seem like it's actually helping to reduce the problem. Or what am I missing? So I thought your response was really interesting, quite powerful. So my concern here is that you're focusing on harm and not rights. So let me just, two concerns here. Imagine that we could, in fact, AI could very accurately predict who is going to commit serious violent crimes in the future. And we decide, okay, should we punish them beforehand? And we use exactly your reasoning verbatim. Connor, why get all caught up in rights or truth? Come on, we're preventing harm here. We're highly accurate. In fact, we already use various algorithms with regard to parole and probation. So it's not even something new, which is better at it. And second, in your own reasoning, which I thought was quite convincing, with regard to household things, you said, well, there the individuals should control it. Why? Because it retains, the person retains autonomy and helps with decision-making. But exactly the same concern about harm with regard to household AI could apply to policies. So my concern is that your, your less than positive attitude towards free speech absolutism would equally support pre-punishing people have a high likelihood of committing crime. I guess I find that offensive. Why? Because I think it's a right infringement. And just in general, we care about rights. We don't care about harm. When you won the job at Cal Poly or you won your wife's heart, you probably grievously harmed competitors. Okay. You caused enormous amounts of harm, but so what? We care about rights. So my general concern is we should focus on rights and not harm. And second, if we were to reason in the way in which you did with regard to social media censorship, this should also support punishing people who are highly likely, 99.99% likely to commit violent crimes in the future. Yeah. The case about pre, pre-crime or pre-punishment, that's a good and a challenging example. I guess I would give the sort of the slate of kind of standard responses, which is, well, maybe we wouldn't be certain until they actually commit the crime or something like that. But on the other hand, depending, and of course, we have the right to a fair trial and so on, that might be the right in particular that's being implicated here that you're concerned about, which is one that I care pretty deeply about too. So I guess I would say, and yet at the same time, we do recognize a justification for interdicting people that we think are about to commit a crime if the crime is serious enough, or if we catch them, say, in the process of committing a crime before it's been carried to fruition or something like that. We do bust people for conspiracy to commit crimes. And the way that we've done that is we've simply defined the conspiracy to commit the crime as a crime itself. So we do punish people for attempted crimes, for conspiracy, for premeditation, for being in the process of planning crimes and so on. You might see that as a way of punishing people preventatively before they're able, I guess, conceptually, it might not be punishment if they haven't committed a crime yet, but it's a way that we try to prevent people from inflicting some grievous amount of harm. And again, when we sort of weight the scales, when we put our thumb on the scales so that these harms are very serious ones indeed, I think that those objections fall away. The claim about caring about rights versus harm is a very good one. There are cases in which the rights seem to matter more than the harm. And there are cases where the harm matters more than the rights. I can violate someone's rights without harming them in any kind of significant or material way. And I'm not very sympathetic to claims that they're, those people are owed compensation or something like that. If I trespass a car across the corner of my neighbor's property, I've violated their right in some sense, but I've harmed them in no way at all. 
and it's I don't find it persuasive that the person who trespasses should be punished for that. So I think that harms tend to rights tend to track harms. I think that rights protect us against classes of behavior or types of behavior that tend to be very harmful. And the more stringent rights we have are ones that protect us against behaviors that are the most harmful. At least that's the kind of theory or the kind of defense that I would give for rights. Does that mean that they always line up? No, they're imperfect proxies for harm. But when we think about the rights that are most plausible, the rights that are most stringent, why do we think that they're important to protect? Because protecting them tends to do good in the long run, even if it doesn't line up perfectly. I'm, I would say that I'm concerned about both harm and rights, but I'm skeptical of the metaphysical foundations of rights in a way that I'm very convinced of the reality and the moral salience of harm. So, so your distinction between pre-punishment and censor and free speech, so look, we're not certain the person's going to commit the crime. Well, that certainly applies to we're not certain that the speech is going to cause harm. And then you said, well, we also believe in the right to trial. Well, a lot of us believe in the right to control your body and control what goes on in your property. So the right to apply equally to speech every bit as much as they apply with regard to the right to trial. So while your response was really powerful and interesting, very well done, I guess I don't find it convincing because the two distinctions you may you made apply every bit as much, if not more so, to speech as they do with regard to pre-punishment. And in any case, we can always just play with the likelihood, stipulate that we're just as certain as one with the other, and that we, I'm not just going to stipulate that the rights to control your body and your property are every bit as stringent as your right to, to trial. I think on the most plausible counts of rights. Sure. Yeah. And I might just add quickly by way of rapprochement that it's not, I think we'll probably agree that if we can hold all of these things constant and say, here's a speech act or here's an utterance that's just as likely to cause as much harm as this person who's cooking a bomb in their kitchen, do we think that it would be just to restrict them in both cases? The answer is, I would think we would probably agree that the answer is yes. I tend to think that the right to speech is probably less stringent than the right to control your bodily autonomy. But I haven't, I'd have to think about that more. So I think a person is wronged less severely if their speech is restricted than if their bodily autonomy is restricted. That seems plausible to me, but I probably, I think that we're reaching, we're starting to reach the point in these arguments where I'm finding it tough to find a foothold on the abstractions that we're talking about. So I'd want to like put some more cases in front of us to say, here's a case, there's a case, what do we think about these? And so on. I think that's what I would have to do to move this to like the next step in the dialectic. But I think, so let me, let me put it this way. We, all of us, all three of us agree, I think that there are some kinds of speech that should be restricted or punished. And then the question is, how far does that set extend and what justifies drawing the boundaries where we would like to draw them? So I think you and I, I think all of us agree about the kinds of salient issues that are on the table. We might disagree about how they interact or how substantive they have to be in order to override one another and so on. I suspect that's what's going on here. Uh, and I'm just a little bit less, in, well, I'm less enthusiastic about speech. I'm less concerned about the restriction of speech. I'm more concerned about the potential for violent harm to people or harms that are treated by speech and so on. That's how I think I would characterize the disagreement. Well, I think it's interesting that we've focused on effectively the first of your cases. So <laughs> as you said, the trajectory where we probably are going is a paternalistic trajectory 
where we have to decide how much how much AI and how much tech puts on the brakes and stops certain behaviors, restricts certain behaviors. But what I'd like to ask about now is the other possibility where AI augments us. So it orders flowers for my wife, right? It, it steps in and performs daily tasks that I would normally perform so well, in fact, that in a few years' time, it takes my job away completely. What kind of world do we live in then? Is that a utopian world where AI removes all of our livelihoods and we're replaced by machines? That's one of the selling points that I never thought I would care about. Yeah, so in the cases, in the what a lot of people would take to be the more, yeah, the more optimistic, the more utopian trajectory for technology is where technology frees us, at least from the drudgery or the more mundane things that we're saddled with in our daily lives. If you look, for example, at the way that Microsoft has been advertising its co-pilot, not the co-pilot for Office, but they're somewhat confusingly using the same moniker for their product that accompanies people while they're typing code in GitHub. So their GitHub co-pilot, the way that they advertise it says things like, 89% of programmers were able to focus on more meaningful work. And 70% of programmers were able to spend more time in flow, which I love, like what a great advertising piece there. And so I think that's the kind of future that we want. The question is, is that the kind of future that we're going to get to? And I think that question depends on a host of other social and political and economic facts. If you imagine what the world would be like tomorrow, where most of our jobs were automated away, well, the result, at least in America, is you'd have most of the people who are unable to find someone to buy their labor. And that seems like a terrible world. That's a world that's ripe for massive civil unrest or starvation or suffering or what have you. So some people have been saying, and including folks from like Y Combinator, folks from the Valley, been saying, look, our political system, our economic system is not really prepared to handle that kind of massive shock to the employment market, the labor market. I think that's right. But I also think that the process is not one that's going to take place overnight. And that's something to be grateful for. The process will take a long time. So we've got some time, at least months or years, probably to figure out some way to accommodate this drastic shortfall in demand for human labor. The world, the most utopian possibility, the one that I think a lot of people are hoping for is the one that Marx was hoping for in the 1840s, 1850s. Marx says in the future, labor will become life's prime want because the machines have advanced so far that they're doing all of our labor for us. And what we miss, what we lack in the world is some way to be skillfully engaged with our environment. That would be a great world, but unless our political and economic systems are set up to still provide us with food and housing, then I'm not sure that's a world that we should be hoping for. So yeah. I'm wondering if we lose a certain meaning in life if we, we suddenly are not making efforts for things. So imagine not only do we not go to work, but we use artificial wombs, ectogestation to carry a child. We have a nanny to take care of our children. We have a robot to make love to our wife. And so increasingly, we're not putting efforts in work. We're not putting efforts in our personal life. 
Is there a point at which our life loses its its enjoyableness or the struggle that that's essential to what makes life meaningful? So it was a concern that these robots are going to do so much for us that we life just becomes meaningless or at least has less meaning than it otherwise would. And to echo Stephen's question, so I'm a novelist and I'm convinced now that ChatGPT can probably write better than I do. And I sat down the other day to start writing a novel and I thought, how valuable is this activity going to be? And I started writing it anyway, and I am writing it. But if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen that one day my readers would prefer to read the ChatGPT version than mine. And what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a good question. I was just reading, someone gave a definition of technology a few days ago. I was reading this a few days ago, and they define technology as the collection of methods and tools that people have used to shelter themselves from nature and to gain control or to gain mastery over nature. And I don't think that definition is perfect, but I do think that it tells us something helpful for this answer here, which is that traditionally, at least one of the things, one of the major changes in our lives that technology has accomplished is that it has interposed itself between us and the natural world. So our relationships to the natural world are mediated through our clothing, shelter, artificial light, heating and cooling, and what have you. Water purification, armor, all this kind of stuff. But there's a, for people that don't get into nature very often, they might have forgotten or they might find it reinvigorating to recall that there is a, there's a irreplaceable kind of serenity and tranquility to being in nature. The Japanese have a term in, in, in Japanese that is a forest bath. My wife and I love spending time in the redwoods. It's our favorite place to be. And because you just, there, there's a kind of feeling that you get from being surrounded by these 300 year old trees and so on. And it really is inspiring and grounding in a wonderful experience. The more that we've built a technological world around ourselves, the more that it's insulated us from that kind of contact with nature, which is really beneficial. Now what happens when you project this forward? And so technology is increasingly insulating us and mediating our reaction, our relationships, not with nature, not with the natural world, but with other human beings. And that's a place where we're already getting to. And we have to appreciate that something is lost when we interpose technology between ourselves and the natural world. Lots of things are gained, obviously, but we lose something too. And the same thing is quite plausible to think about human beings. On the one hand, we couldn't have this conversation without Zoom. But on the other hand, this conversation is not a facsimile, not a replacement for being in person, of course. So technology, I think it's Neil Postman says, technology gives with one hand, it takes away with the other. And we have to appreciate that, that it's not all sunshine and rainbows when we have technological inventions that make new things possible because they continue to, say, distort the world or present a version of the world, a version of our interactions. And the more and more of these that we start offloading to machines, uh, we're slowly, one at a time, having these opportunities for human connection just out of our daily lives, our daily schedule. Imagine... That, so I just finished teaching. In fact, grades are due today in a couple hours. 
suppose with the press of a button, I could have GPT write an email to all each of my students individually, right? A personalized email talking about how great it was to have them in class and maybe mentioning something about their final paper and how much I enjoyed it and actually pulling from their paper. I could, you could probably whip up something like that in like an hour or two of coding and have it done. And there's a kind of paradox here because on the one hand, it's clearly not as meaningful as if I had done it myself or even, God forbid, if I had written those notes by hand. That'd be wild if you really want to throw back. But on the other hand, it's probably better than nothing, right? It's better than the alternative where they get no communication or no contact from me. So one way of thinking about this is that in terms of the quality of our interactions, technology is having a kind of mere addition problem here. So it makes more of these, that is the mere addition paradox. It's having more of these interactions possible and available to us, but each time they're added, they are of a lower quality than the other interactions we have. And so on average, they tend to bring down the quality, the richness, the substance of our interactions with other people. And yes, it's you, you improve the total well-being of the world, as you do in Parfit's original example. It's better to have these interactions than not have them at all. But at the same time, our entire field of interactions is becoming diluted or watered down in a way that makes them much less gratifying and meaningful, I think. So I guess a question that listeners or viewers would want to ask is they want to predict the future and they want to say, will our lives be better or worse for technology? Is That's great. On balance, is it going to be better or worse? So sometimes I have, this is a great question. Sometimes I'll sit next to someone on a plane and I'll say, oh, I study technology. And they say, do you like technology? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I think that it's undeniable that, that technology makes our lives a lot more comfortable, a lot more convenient and efficient and enjoyable. I don't doubt that for a second. And I have to, sometimes I feel like I really have to bend over backwards to make that clear to my audience. When I'm, if I'm talking to students, for example, I've had students tell me that my philosophy of technology class is very dour, <laughs> but I think, I think it's because the benefits of technology are all around us. We don't need reminding of that. What we need and what our future well-being depends on is our ability to look more closely at the nuance of the trade-offs that we're making when we invite technology into our lives. And if we're going to make sure that we reserve a space for the most meaningful and rich interactions that we have, the ones that are the clearest source of value in our lives, that's going to take an increasingly deliberate, conscious effort. So it's things like setting a standing meeting on Fridays to have coffee or a beer with your friend. It's things like forcing yourself to turn off your computer, get up from your desk at five o'clock, forcing yourself to leave your cell phone in another room when you go to sleep at night and to wake up with stretching instead of doom scrolling. Those are very conscious habits that we have to inculcate in ourselves now because technology is, it's like the water flowing into the cracks. It's just found a way to insinuate itself into all of these moments of our lives that we need to, now we need to claw back and we need to very deliberately try to fill those spaces with more meaningful interactions and more meaningful experiences. So whether the future is a good one or a bad one, whether our lives are going to be more or less enjoyable, 
is going to depend on our commitment to pay that very close attention and to do that, to put forth that, that pretty significant effort to make sure there's space in our lives for the things that we really care about. So I'm curious as to why you think technology makes our lives go better overall. Now, that could be in a question of like, at what level does it make it go better? But compare us to hunter-gatherers. So before the agricultural revolution, why think our lives go better? We, back then, we faced actual risk, not just minimal risks. We had real dependence on our family and friends, not low-level dependence. Whether someone was virtuous or vicious really mattered. And there were real payoffs for having a good character. So I'm wondering, why do you think that we were actually happier or that our lives went better now as opposed to hunter-gatherers? In addition, their hedonic treadmill effects, you might think our happiness level is, has a heavily genetic component in any case, seeks uh, an equilibrium. But leaving aside hedonic treadmill effects, what evidence do you have that people today are happier than they were during hunter-gatherer times when there was little to no technology? Yeah, I think that the hedonic treadmill cuts both ways, right? Because you could also imagine if we lost all this technology tomorrow in six months or a year-ish, we'd probably report being just as happy as we are today, which is really surprising. I think that the clearest and most concrete examples I can give are from medicine. And I think that those ought to be uncontroversial. I know that there's some evidence that hunter-gatherer societies, they live in much more tight-knit social communities, which are good. They have a lot more leisure time. Like they, I even was reading something one time from <clears throat> some primitivist a blog, and it remarked that hunter-gatherers wouldn't even recognize what we call work. There's just the things that they had to do were interwoven into their daily routines and their interactions with others, whether it was hunting or gathering or building or nurturing each other and so on. But, and that seems like a very idyllic life, but I'm certainly not about to give up medicine. I'm not about to give up an extra 20 or 30 years of life expectancy. I'm not about to give up the variety of foods that I have from all over the world, which are always in season and ripe. I'm not about to give up Air, like airline travel and things that, that protect me from the weather and so on, heating and cooling and so on. So all of those things have made life much more commodious. But then there's the real, real benefits of having things like medicine, surgery, and so on. It, it does seem very attractive to go live off the grid. I think that part of the impetus for that is that the desire to recapture that simplicity or that, that life that was divorced from contemporary technology that's always groping for our attention. But at the same time, a broken leg could be a death sentence or a bacterial infection could be a death sentence. And that's a world that on the whole, I don't think is desirable. Now, I do think if I had my druthers, if I had a magic wand, I would remove a lot of things or reorder a lot of things about our contemporary society that would move it closer to the kind of life that you just sketched. But on the whole, there's enough about this world that I would find very difficult to live without. It's like the Amish, right? The Amish are often held up as this example of a kind of Luddite society. But people might find it surprising that the Amish do have things like telephones. They just, they would often just have a single telephone in the city. Why? Well, because they acknowledged the advantages of being able to call the quote unquote outside world, if you will. But they also recognize the harm to the social fabric that you could do if you put a telephone in the hands of every teenager. And so, again, part of this is just being extremely mindful and reflective about 
not just which technologies we adopt, but how we bring them into our lives. In, in this case, it's just a matter of where it's placed. I used to think about this growing up. We had one, one phone in the middle of our house, one landline in the middle of our house, like in the kitchen, right? In like the geographic center of the house, which made sense in case anyone needed to make a call. But it also made it impossible to have privacy if you're a teenage boy trying to flirt with someone on the phone. And so you think about how something as simple as the geographic location of this or whether this thing's tethered to the wall or whether you can hold it in your hand, even a portable phone that's still a landline opens up very different possibilities for what your youth would look like. I think the Amish illustrate a good point. There's a, there's a piece by Langdon Winner that I admire quite a bit, and I actually assign this to my students in the first week. It's called Luddism as Epistemology. And the claim here is that there are certain things that we can understand about technology only after we have removed it from our lives. So that's the Luddism, the idea of rejecting technology. So I have my students do an exercise where they choose a technology to give up for a week. And with streaming services or social media or artificial heat, I had a student give up like fire for a week. So you had to microwave everything. And yeah, some students give up the microwave itself. And so they have to cook communal meals and so on. And so I split this assignment into two halves. First, I say, I want you to imagine how your life will be different once you give up this technology. And then at the end of it, they reflect on whether their predictions were correct. Because the thesis of Langdon Winner's article is that there are certain things we can only know. Of course, we can hazard a guess, we can speculate, we can imagine what it's like. But there are certain things that we can only know for sure once we have removed these things from our lives. And only at that point are we in a position to integrate them back into our lives with full information. And so I love, I love, I think this piece is really fantastic. And again, it goes to the same point as the Amish. It goes to the same point of thinking like, how, do, how are our lives different from the lives of hunter-gatherers and what parts of their lives would we want to swap with ours and so on? So this is a really, a really great exercise. And I think it illustrates this point exactly. So I'm curious as to why you don't think we're going to hit an auto dystopia. Imagine that we have robots and AI systems and things which can generate things for us. What makes you think that people are not going to be on their 3D printers, printing out cocaine, making love to robots night and day, and, you know, whatever will maximally be maximally funny or maximally enjoyable or maximally moving because our TV will, will know enough about us to know how to construct the story. And so the result is we have a it degeneration because we're not focusing on things that matter. So why don't you think we won't just degenerate into this cesspool of <laughs> selfishness and lack of meaning, lack of effort, lack of risk that, that gets us absolutely as far away as we can get from hunter-gatherers, but in a negative direction? Yeah. I think that we are headed there in, in some ways, for sure. Let's not, yeah, let's not, let's not forget. I think that's quite likely the direction that we're heading in general. Our life, our lives become gradually more passive, more based around consumption than production or engagement and so on, and very far divorced from traditional understandings of excellence or a good life. Especially if you go back to the ancient Greeks, you think about being excellent as refining your capabilities across every dimension of human well-being, artistic, intellectual, athletic, political, all of those things. And what's happened, I think, is that we have 
more and more generations of tools are catering to the lowest common denominator, or they're catering to a world where we want to achieve as much as we can with a, as little effort as possible. And so that seems very superficially attractive. And then we form our habits and our routines around those kinds of technologies. And before you know it, we're not, we're not learning to paint, but we're fiddling around with stable diffusion and prompt engineering to get it to generate the kinds of things that we want it to generate instead. But there's a pretty big difference between a world where lots of people can paint or play violin and a world where you can just use your voice to ponder up an image of a beautiful landscape or something like that. And I think that is the direction that we tend to be headed. And I think that's because in the absence of a very deliberate movement and effort, it's easy, I'd say, probably by definition, it's easiest to settle into that, that very comfortable life where things are done for you or things are brought to you, or you can get all the outcomes you want with very little effort. 